0: If you will open your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 7, and uh, this morning we're going to be in verses 1 to 13. We're starting a new chapter this morning. We finished chapter 6 last week, and uh, this morning we'll be in the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 7. The title of the sermon this morning is a question. Uh, What place do traditions have in the Christian faith? What place do traditions have in the Christian faith? And these are not traditions like... um, making gingerbread, you know, during Christmas time, that those kind of traditions. These are traditions that are passed down in the Christian faith. And so that's my question this morning. So let's read the text, open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the sermon this morning. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. You will pray with me. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to understand the the role, the place of tradition in the Christian faith. God, where tradition is good and where it has been faithfully passed down by the apostles and handed down to us uh, through, uh, through church leaders, and where tradition goes awry, and where it begins to take precedent over the Word of God, Help us to discern this this morning, God, and what place does tradition have in the Christian faith? Please help me, God, to make this clear. Please help all of us to to listen um, well with ears opened by the Holy Spirit this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every church has traditions, whether they know it or not. And these traditions in the church can often become a point of contention in the body, things like whether we should have deacons or not, and whether deacons should have governing power or not, whether we should have elders or not, and whether we should be elder rule or elder led, whether women can be pastors or deacons or teachers, both or neither, whether we should practice church discipline and when and on whom. Whether we should have membership, and who should be permitted to become a member. Whether divorce is permitted, and on what basis is it permitted. Who can get baptized at what age and what mode. When can we take the Lord's Supper, and who can take it. And on, and on, and on. Often when these issues are debated in the church, The argument that is made is not defended from God's Word, but rather tradition. That's the argument often. This past spring, one of the questions uh, submitted to me and asked the pastor a series that I do on Friday nights every year. Here was the question. What is the basis of sola scriptura, scripture alone, as opposed to traditions taught by the apostles as written in 2 Thessalonians 2.15? by mouth or letter, how might we respond to someone who says this verse authorizes the church's representatives to create traditions that we should obey as Christians? End question. And that's what I hope to bring clarity to you this morning. What place do traditions have in the Christian faith? That's the question that we're looking at this morning. And so let's look at the text, the position of the text. And then I'll give application at the end. Let's start looking at verses 1 and 2, where Mark writes, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now we see once again that the Pharisees have gathered to Jesus. The Pharisees were an important and the largest religious group at the time of Jesus. Their name means separated ones, holy ones. They were strict adherents to the Old Testament law and to numerous traditions, as we will see in our text today. Not only did the Pharisees gather to Jesus, but so did the scribes. The scribes were experts in the Mosaic law. Now, we've already seen in Mark that both the Pharisees and the scribes have challenged Jesus on the issue of the Sabbath, If you remember when Jesus' disciples walked through a grain field, they were plucking heads of grain, and they saw this, and they had a problem with them plucking grain on the Sabbath. They considered it to be work on the Sabbath. And so now they come to Jesus with yet another problem that they have with Jesus' disciples. They see Jesus' disciples eat their food with hands that are defiled, that is, unwashed. The word for defiled is literally common, but it can also take the meaning of unclean. Now, I want to be very clear. They are not challenging Jesus on the basis of good hygienic practice. That's not their basis. Their issue is not with germs. That's some of our issue. That's not their issue. So what is their issue? Look at verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Mark gives us this parenthetical here. And I think the reason he gives a parenthetical is because he's writing to Gentiles and they would not understand the the reasoning behind this. And so he's telling them, the Pharisees and the Jews, they do not eat unless they wash their hands, he says, properly properly. Now, how that reads literally in the Greek? Unless they wash their hands with a fist. They're like, what what does that mean? Most scholars have no idea what that means. It probably indicates some type of ceremonial washing. Probably was an idiom to indicate it was a ceremonial washing. Though, again, let me repeat that the washing of their hands was not for hygienic reasons. Hand washing for hygiene will not become a prescribed practice For at least another thousand years. They are doing this because they are holding to the tradition of the elders. Now I want to draw your attention to this word tradition. We're going to see it five times in our passage this morning. And I want to ask two questions. Number one, what is a tradition? And number two, is a tradition good or bad? So let's start with number one: what is a tradition? The Greek word simply means the content of instruction that has been handed down. The content of instruction that's been handed down. So in other words, the elders had passed down instruction that all Jews should wash their hands before they eat, ceremonially wash their hands before they eat. Number two, is a tradition good or bad? And the answer is, it depends. So what makes a tradition good or bad? I'll discuss that in the application. Notice, notice whose tradition is this. This tradition is the tradition of the elders. Now, we have not seen this term in Mark yet. It's, this is the first time we're coming across it. Who are the elders? The Greek term is presbyteros. It's where we get the word Presbyterian from. There are two main definitions of elders. A, pertaining to being relatively advanced in age, older. So our elders are just those who are, in, we call them seniors today. That would be elders. Uh, that's one definition. The other definition is an official, almost like a senator. An official of the synagogue, an official of the church. Elders here is referring to a group of officials that hold office in the Jewish synagogue, Now, if you look all throughout the Gospels, you will frequently see two groups of people that are listed together, chief priests and elders. You'll see it over and over again. The chief priests, elders, chief priests, elders, over and over again. And so what had happened is, is that the elders had passed down a tradition, a teaching, an instruction that all Jews were to ceremonially wash their hands before they eat. Now, why? If it's not doing it for hygiene, why, why, why do this? I think common consensus is that the Jews wanted to distinguish themselves from everything that was unclean. And in an attempt to make this distinction, they had hand washing. It was kind of to say that uh, I am separated from Marin and Alex because look at these barbarians eating with unwashed hands and I wash my hands. It was to distinguish themselves as being clean. Not clean in the hygienic sense. Clean in the religious sense. Look at verse 4. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. When the Jews get off work from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have first washed their hands. Now, why? Because in their minds, they have defiled their hands with everybody they have touched that day. They may have touched people who are lepers or uh, the the bleeding woman or uh, uh, Samaritans. Or, or Gentiles, they may have touched people and so they have defiled hands. And so when they get off work from the marketplace, before they go eat, they go and they wash their hands. Hand-washing is not the only tradition they pass down. Mark writes many other traditions they observe. They also wash, interesting, the word for wash in this passage is baptizmos, literally baptize. They wash their cups, their pots, their vessels, their copper vessels, even their dining couches. So before they eat, they are ceremonially washing everything, even their dining couches. This was the original COVID mandate. Look at verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? keep in mind, this tradition is observed not only by the Pharisees, the scribes, and the elders, but also the Jews, all the Jews. And so they notice Jesus and his disciples not observing this tradition. When they notice it, they're perplexed, if not incensed. And so they, the Pharisees and the scribes, they come to Jesus, and they ask him about it. They come to him, and they say, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders and eat with defiled hands? Now, I want you to notice two things are implied in this question. Number one, there is an expectation with this tradition. There's an expectation. This is not a tradition like putting up a Christmas tree, right? Where you can do it if you want and not do it if you don't want There's, you know, if you don't put up a Christmas tree, no one's going to come to you, or at least I'm not going to come to you and be like, why do you not put up a Christmas tree? Do it if you want. If that's not your tradition, that's not your tradition. Okay. But there's an expectation that everybody would follow this tradition. Number two, there's an assumption that if you don't follow this tradition, you are guilty of eating with defiled hands. Not dirty hands. Notice, they're not saying that, you know, why do your disciples eat with dirty hands? That's not the point. They're saying defiled hands, which means what? Defiled against who? Defiled against who? Defiled against God. The assumption then means that if you eat with unwashed hands, it is sin. Now, how was Jesus going to respond to their question? How was he going to respond to this? Look at verse 6-7. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, Jesus does as he normally does when he is asked a question. He doesn't answer the question. Instead, Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes them by quoting Scripture to them. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Wow. Don't ever say Jesus wasn't confrontational. This is the only time that Mark uses the word hypocrite. But Matthew uses it 13 times on the lips of many of those on the lips of Jesus. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is an actor, literally an actor, a pretender. It comes from the the Greek uh, uh, acting sense where you would wear two masks and show people one, and, and yet you're another. It's one who pretends to be other than he really is. Now, why did Jesus call them hypocrites? In what sense were they hypocrites? Jesus takes Isaiah 29, 13, and he applies it to them. Now, there are four statements from that passage that he speaks. Here they are. Number one, this people honors me with their lips. In other words, Jesus acknowledges that the Pharisees and the scribes, they honor God with their words. They honor God with their songs, with their prayers, with their teachings. They honor God with their words. Number two, but their heart is far from me. Jesus says that their honoring of God is nothing more than lip service. And three, In vain do they worship me. Notice, they worship God. They honor God. But they do it in vain. They do it to no end. They do it worthlessly. And number four, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, there's one word in that last phrase that is a problem. Men. They are not teaching the commandments of God. They are teaching the commandments of men. Look at verse 8 to 9. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Verses 8 and 9 virtually say the same thing. They parallel each other. Uh, he, He says, you leave the commandment of God. That parallels you reject the commandment of God. You hold to the tradition of men. That parallels you establish your tradition. These are strong verbs that are employed by Jesus. Very strong verbs. The word for leave, when he says you leave, same word for divorce. You leave the commandment of God. Reject, you reject the commandment of God. And you hold, hold, seize, arrest the commandment of God. You establish. Your, you, you hold your tradition, you establish, you erect, you set firmly in place your traditions. So notice the contrast here. The commandment of God, the tradition of men. They are leaving, rejecting the commandment of God, and they are holding and establishing the tradition of men. And Jesus is going to give them a very specific example in case they don't understand, well, what are you talking about, Jesus? He's going to give them a very specific example of them doing this. Look at verses 10 to 13. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, Jesus quotes two commandments of God here. These come from Exodus 20 and 21. Exodus 20, 12, one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your father and mother. In Exodus twenty-one seventeen. whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Now he's going to focus on the honor of your father and mother. And of course, we have got to explain what does that mean? What did honoring father and mother mean in this context? Three things that it meant. Number one, honoring father and mother means to obey them when you are a child under their authority. When you are a child under your parents' authority, you obey them. That's number one. Number two, it means to respect them even when you are no longer under their authority. So even when you have moved out or you have gotten married and you're no longer under their authority, we are to respect our mother and our father. And number three, very important, to care for them in their old age, both in finances and in service in the same way they cared for us in childhood. Now, there are caveats to that, and that's for another day and another time. So Jesus lays the foundation of God's commandment. He lays the foundation. That's the commandment. But the Pharisee and the scribes said, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Corban is a transliteration of the Hebrew word for gift or offering to God. Now, what does that mean? What is Corban? It's a tradition they had. What is it? There are two scenarios, two possible scenarios here for Corbin. Here they are. Scenario A is, let's say that a young man, maybe he's you know, 22 or 18 or 25, doesn't matter. A young man makes an offering to God. Let's say it's a parcel of land. Let's say he, you know, he bought a parcel of land and he owns this parcel of land. And uh, upon his death, it will be sold and the proceeds given to the temple. So he has, he has offered this parcel of land to God. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this land to the Lord. And so when, it, when I die, it will be sold and the proceeds will be given to the temple. Now, let's say that his parents fell on hard times, hard financial times, and they need the financial help. The man would want to sell his land now. He'd want to sell his land now, take the proceeds, and then financially help his parents. But the Pharisees would not permit him to do so. They would say, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, that's Corbin. You've devoted that to God. That's scenario A. Scenario B is that a person may intentionally devote his gift to God. Again, let's say it's a parcel of land. Now, why would he do this? Because he gets to retain possession of the land until he dies. And what does he do with it until he dies? He makes a profit off of it. He uses that to make a profit off the land. And if his parents fall on hard financial times, and they ask him, can you help us out financially? He says, sorry, mom, dad, I wish I could, but uh, I've offered the land as Corbin. Can't do it. In other words, Corbin was used as a loophole to get out of helping mother and father. Now, in this particular case, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for scenario A, though scenario B did exist. He's rebuking them that the Pharisees have taken their tradition of Corbin and they have elevated it above the Mosaic law. Their tradition has come above the Mosaic law. Jesus says, in doing so, you in effect have made void the word of God. In other words, your tradition has trumped God's word. The word of God said to honor your father and mother, and yet you will not permit people to honor their father and mother because of your tradition, Corbin. And you've made void the word of God. And Jesus says, this is not the only instance. Jesus says, and many such things you do. We'll stop there with exposition. Application, how do we apply this? I have five points of application. Number one, knowing that the world is constantly watching us and critiquing us. How now should we live? Knowing that the world is constantly watching us, constantly critiquing us, how now should we live? So far in the Gospel of Mark, we have seen that the Pharisees and the scribes were scrupulously watching Jesus. I mean, just like, just, it's almost like, did you do anything else except just like watch him? They're like paparazzis just following Jesus, like trying to trick him and trap him and They watched him eat with sinners and tax collectors. They carefully watched him as he went into the synagogue to see, is he going to heal on the Sabbath? Let's see. Let's wait and see if he heals on the Sabbath. They watched his disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath. In our text this morning, they watched Jesus' disciples eat with unwashed hands, hands that they considered to be defiled. Now, here's one of the questions that I had when I read this text. Should Jesus' disciples have washed their hands? Why not just wash your hands? In other words, can we apply Paul's maxim? I have become all things to all people. Can we apply that to this scenario? To the hand washers, I became a hand washer. Can we apply that? This is where we often find ourselves, is it not? knowing that the world is constantly watching us, critiquing us, how now should we live? In other words, when should I, proverbially speaking, wash my hands to not give offense? Right? Jesus could do that. He'd be like, look, they they want you to wash your hands. Just, Just wash your hands. Not a big deal. Put some water on it. Okay, all right, good, good. When should I, proverbially speaking, wash my hands to not give an offense And when should I exercise the freedom that I have in Christ? There is no way we could come up with a rule book that would cover every scenario. We want that. We want a a massive manual like a Library of Congress that would would give us a, a rule book for every scenario. We won't get that. Here's what I would say. There is a time and a place to become all things to all people. And doing so, we do it in the hopes of winning them, in the hopes of winning them to salvation. There's a time and a place to do that. And there is a time and a place that in attempting to become all things to all people, we are putting ourselves under a yoke of the law, a yoke even of tradition. In other words, if the disciples had washed their hands here, it would have given credence to the Pharisees and the scribes that this practice was, in effect, making them clean. If Jesus had said, well, they're going to be offended if we don't wash our hands, we should just do it. It's not a big deal. Let's just wash our hands and not offend them. If they had done that, it would have given credence to all the people. Well, look at Jesus. Even he washes his hands. I guess this really is making us clean. I guess we have to do this. And Jesus says, no, no, disciples, you do not need to wash your hands because eating with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. That's what Jesus says in Matthew. This means that we must exercise wisdom to know when should we become all things to all people and when should we make a statement to the lost as Jesus makes a statement to them. Only wisdom, the Spirit, Counsel, God's Word, can help us discern that. Number two, what makes a tradition good or bad? What makes a tradition good or bad? Now, when I say tradition, again, I don't mean it in the sense of like putting up Christmas trees during Christmas season or barbecuing at the 4th of July. I don't mean in that sense. I mean traditions as used in our passage this morning. A teaching that is passed down in the Christian faith. What makes a tradition good or bad, or are traditions good or bad? Here's the tricky part. Paul speaks of traditions both in a negative light and a positive light. He does both. Here's the negative, Galatians 1.14. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. That's being used in a negative light. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. That's a negative light. Here's the positive light. 1 Corinthians eleven two. 2. Now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. 2 Thessalonians 2, 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. All those use the exact same word. So how do we discern? How do we discern what traditions in the Christian faith are good and what traditions in the Christian faith are bad? How do we discern that? And the way that I see it is that there are two types of traditions. Two types. There is a tradition that is handed down to us from the word of God. There is a tradition that comes to us from the word of God. And there is a tradition that is crafted by human ingenuity, human reason, human logic. The tradition of washing hands and washing dishes and washing couches, that was not passed down by God. You will not find that prescribed anywhere in the Old Testament. Only the priest were required to wash. Now, the priests were required to wash, but only the priests. There is no command in the Old Testament to wash your hands before you eat. So this was a product of human ingenuity. Now, here's the thing. They have good intentions. Their intention is to be set apart. Their intention is to be clean. They want to be set apart from the world. And yet... And yet, it's still wrong to look to washings to do this. It is wrong if we are washing our hands or doing anything in the thought that this is making me clean. Now you say, well, why is this important? Here's why it's important. It's important to this church, but here's why it's especially important. If you leave this church and you go to another church or another denomination, you may be taught traditions. And you will have to discern what traditions are in line with the Word of God and what traditions are not. You'll have to discern that. I'll come back to that idea. Number three, Hebrews 6.1. This this point of application comes from Hebrews 6.1. Therefore, Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now, I include that as the point of application because if you read the next verse in Hebrews, here's what the author of Hebrews writes. And of instructions about washings, same word, baptismos, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, I don't have time to do a full exegesis of what the author of Hebrews is saying here. So to oversimplify it, here's what he's saying. There is a type of Christian who stays in a place of immaturity because he or she is still looking to their works in some measure to make them right with God. say that again. There is a type of Christian who stays in a place of immaturity because he or she is still looking to their works in some measure to make them right with God. And the author of Hebrews is exhorting this Christian, leave that elementary doctrine and go on to maturity. Now, none of us, as far as I know, are washing our hands and our dishes and certainly not our dining couches in order to be right with God. But that doesn't mean that we are not susceptible to falling into the trap of looking to our works to make us right with God. We are all susceptible to that trap. In other words, what the Pharisees did with washings, we can do with spiritual disciplines. Now, let me be very clear here. Let me be very clear. I'm not saying we should do away with spiritual disciplines. It is right to do away with washings. In this context, it is not right to do away with spiritual disciplines. Let me be very clear on that. Here's what I am saying, though. In the same way that the Pharisees looked to their washings, that when they ate their food, they thought, I am clean. I am not like these unclean sinners over here. Look at me. In the way that they look to their washings to consider themselves right with God, we can look to spiritual disciplines to consider ourselves right with God. Church attendance, tithing, reading the Word, prayer, making disciples, singing praises, serving, You see, often if I ask you, how are you with God? Where are you with God? We often go right there. And here's the challenge. You can do all of that and not be right with God. You can go to church every week. You can tithe 20%. You can read the word, you can pray, you can make disciples, you can sing praises, you can serve, and yet not be right with God. If we look to these things to make us right with God, as the author of Hebrews says, we are laying a foundation of repentance from dead works. There is only one thing that makes us right with God, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. If you want to wash your hands, wash them in the blood of Jesus Christ. If you want to wash your sexually stained bed, wash it in the blood of Jesus Christ. If you want to wash out your alcohol bottle, wash it out with the blood of Jesus Christ. If you want to wash your finances clean, launder your money with the blood of Jesus Christ. Because that's the only thing that makes us clean. Don't look to anything to make you right with God or to give you a correct barometer of where are you with God. Look to Christ. Look to His blood. Look to the cross. And yes, spiritual disciplines are important in case anybody misunderstands me. Number four, it is possible to honor and worship God with our lips and yet our hearts to be far from Him. Now this is somewhat making the same point, but maybe slightly different. It is possible to honor God and worship God with our lips and yet our hearts to be far from Him. You know, when we normally think of the Pharisees, we, I don't know about you, I I guess I should speak for myself, not for you. I normally think of them as kind of these mean, curmudgeon, unpleasant type of people. Maybe that's how you see them, right? Just kind of like, just like, like the old, like principal lady, you know, just walks around, just kind of constantly looking like with a, just a grisly look on her face. I Here's the thing. That's not how they were viewed by the people. They were well-respected. They were well-respected by everybody. They were holy people. Their name means pious ones. Everybody looked up to them. They were more devout than anybody else. They fasted twice a week. They gave tithes of all that they had. They memorized large portions of the Torah, even Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They honored and worshiped God devoutly, and yet Jesus said their hearts were far from Him. Remember Jesus' statement in Matthew 7:22? He said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now, did you ever notice that that is not people who are irreligious? That's not not people out, out of the church. That's people in the church. They call him Lord, Lord. They called him Lord in their life. They honored him as Lord in their life. They prophesied in Jesus' name. They cast out demons in Jesus' name. They do many mighty works in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, I do not know you. Why? Because their hearts are far from him. Brothers and sisters, hear me when I say this. as as, as fervently as I can say, because listen to me, the odds that nobody in this church, that verse will not be true of, is about zero. Hear me when I say this, it is possible to come in here every week and sing praises to God. Listen attentively to the sermon. Answer the questions. Take the Lord's Supper. Pray fervently. Fellowship with the saints. Serve the body. And yet, hearts to be far from God. That is possible. Where is your heart this morning? Where is it? Is it near God or is it far from Him? Five, last point. We are a church that affirms Sola Scriptura both corporately and individually. We are a church that affirms Sola Scriptura both corporately and individually. What is sola scriptura? Sola scriptura is a Latin phrase, which means by Scripture alone. Now, we don't have a time to do a full explanation. I need to do a whole Friday series on that, on what this doctrine teaches. So again, here is an oversimplified definition of that. Sola scriptura means that Scripture is the final authority or the supreme authority. Scripture, this, the Word of God, is the final authority or the supreme authority. Now, one of the reasons we subscribe to this doctrine both corporately and individually, is because it safeguards us against practices such as Corbin. How does Corbin come into play? How does that even happen? Because your tradition begins to take precedent over the Word of God. See, Corbin for them was trumping the Word of God. The Word was no longer the final authority. Corbin was. Now, this happens all the time in churches. All the time. And many churches often tradition. Yeah, I'll give you a phrase that I, I have heard in ministry for years and years and years. And if you grew up, if you've ever been involved in ministry, you've heard it too. Here's the phrase. This is how we've always done it. They they used to teach that that the earth was the center of the universe too. (laughs) This is when tradition trumps the word of God. Often, or or it's the prevailing culture. A tradition of what are other churches doing? Well, we're going to do this. And we look to other churches. Well, what are other churches doing? Well, this is what so-and-so does. Well, what if they're wrong? (laughs) Often our personalities, I I can't bring myself to do that. I'm not that kind of person. I I can't do that. Your personality trumps the word of God. Do you know how many times in the church I have heard people make an argument to make a defense about why they have this position or whatever? And there's no scripture, there's no basis for it. None. It's just, this is what Southern Baptists do. Southern Baptists used to hold slaves. What does that mean? We don't do things just because this is what Southern Baptists do, we don't do things just because this is what CSBC has always done. That's not how we run a church. That's not how we run our lives. We are Sola Scriptura. What does the Word of God say? This has got to be our final authority. This has got to be our supreme authority. And no matter what cost it comes at, we've got to do it. We are a church that affirms Sola Scriptura both corporately and individually. Neither tradition nor culture nor our personalities should ever be the final or supreme authority for how we make decisions in the church or in the Christian life. Only God's word needs to be the final authority, the supreme authority. Let's pray.